0: Good afternoon, Team community, and welcome back to another episode of Down the Rabbit Hole on the Russia Ukraine War. Uh, so, your host here, Major Ian Brown, Operations Officer at the Krelak Center, and we welcome back Dr. Yuval Weber, our Russia SME, after what was a pretty sleepless night because uh, Mr. Putin decided that he was going to have some big news breaking, but it didn't break until the wee hours of, uh, or for us anyway, our time. So, anyway, the kind of the big a couple of big ticket items over the last 24 hours that are related to each other. And we'll we'll kind of tackle them in in a reverse order of how I'm going to talk about it. But first yesterday or, or late in the evening, a couple of days ago, there were inklings that the, uh, the occupied regions of Kherson, Zaporizhia and Luhansk and Donetsk, Oblast were going to, uh, basically accelerate their referenda to become part of Russia proper. Um, Kherson and Zaporizhia had occupied, but and otherwise no other particular status that Russia had recognized. Although, however, Luhansk and Donetsk, if we roll back to the beginning of the war, those were the two areas that Russia had, uh, they recognized their independence basically. And then, and then the war started shortly thereafter. Well, now they're going to have a referenda on joining the Russian Federation formally to become, in Russia's eyes, its own territory. That then led into a uh, announcement that the that Vladimir Putin was actually going to address the Russian people on this whole thing in person it was supposed to be last yesterday afternoon, last night. Our time got rolled into we hours of the morning. Our time, which was um, morning in Far East Russia, I think, was the time that he delivered it. Um, and he, among other things we'll talk about here he announced a partial mobilization for uh for Russian society to support the war effort in Ukraine. We had talked about this in past episodes as something maybe he would maybe he wouldn't. There were a lot of reasons why he had not done it up to that point, but now he's done it calling for calling up 300,000 reservists um to to fill the ranks essentially. And uh there's there's already been some some fallout from that inside Russia which we'll talk about here, but um, you've all, if you want to just take us into starting with the speech, right? What, what was in the speech? What did Putin say? And potentially as important, what did he not say? What was absent from the speech that you noted?
1: Uh, so, yeah, the, there's a lot to unpack. So starting basically with the discussion, the discussion was, um. As many of them are a series of grievances and, uh, really talking about this conflict as not between russia and ukraine the effect of like what has happened on the battlefield over the past seven months is for putin to admit that ukraine is doing this um is to admit that the russian army cannot handle ukraine so he made very specific references to we are not fighting against ukraine but we are fighting against neo-nazis so obviously these are bad people but we're also fighting against the full military machine of the west and that's sort of a way to frame. For the Russian people, what this conflict is about Um, this is about Russia's sovereignty. It's autonomy. Although it invaded the neighbor, um, the issue is now global in nature. And so, in effect, what um, uh, Putin described, and this goes into, in essence, the. The so called referenda, but I mean, the referenda for the 4, 4 areas that you mentioned, um, these are uh, previously scheduled for um, earlier. Uh, this month, in September 11th, uh, to coincide with regional elections in Russia. Uh, that didn't happen because obviously the counteroffensive um, changed the priorities for uh, the, the occupation officials there from holding an election, basically, to uh, a fleeing, which is a much more critical uh, time-sensitive task uh, when the opposing army is coming in your direction. Then they had wanted to reschedule it for November 4th, which is Unity Day in Russia, sort of a public holiday um, that previously replaced uh, the commemoration of the revolution and is meant to be sort of an all civic holiday within Russia. That was also canceled because the uh, offensive is ongoing. So we had at this point, the um, President Putin obviously getting bad news from the field, uh, from the battlefield, um, getting criticized. Uh, from military bloggers, um, you know, former, uh, you know, basically people like talk show uh, guests on TV as well as politicians at the national level who all started to criticize Putin. From the, the nationalist right and that's really the context, because from the nationalist, right? What all these people are saying is we need a big mobilization. We need to call it a war. We need to not give Russia's victory. To the Ukrainians and to the West, because if we lose basically these areas of what is ours, so to speak, in Ukraine, you know, we're going to feel the effects of that for hundreds of years, etc. So that was the context on the battlefield. The other context was Putin didn't have much success in going west. Uh, you know, anything there, so he went to the Shanghai Cooperation Organization meeting in Samarkand, in Uzbekistan. And he had a series of humiliations over the course of an entire week. Um, Leaders of China, India, Turkey, and most humiliatingly, uh, uh, Kyrgyz Republic all made him wait when they're going for their um, for their photo ops. And even though Putin has lost. Tens of thousands, perhaps even more of his uh, fellow citizens to a war of choice doesn't seem to really be perturbed about that in public. But waiting for uh, foreign leaders uh, to leave him just sort of dangling by himself, you you could just see him just lose his mind in real time. Um, Fighting between Armenia and Azerbaijan, uh, he wasn't able to do very much about that. And the foreign ministers of those countries actually went to New York uh, ahead of the UN General Assembly meeting uh, to broker their ceasefire talks there with Secretary of State uh, Antony Blinken. This followed a visit by Nancy Pelosi to Armenia which supported uh, to support Armenia and its fight against Azerbaijan uh, and even though Armenia is part of Russia's, you know, collective uh, defense organization. Tajikistan and Kyrgyz Republic, also both members of the cooperation of security, the cooperation security treaty organization. um, They're both members, which is Russia's version of NATO. They're both fighting each other. Russia was unable to do anything from that. Uh, Kazakhstan got um, Xi Jinping to support its territorial integrity. Lots of different bad things were happening. So that's where we get to the context of this speech in which he says, you know, the news from the battlefield is bad. All of Russia's southern border is basically like on fire, so to speak. Uh, They're having to redeploy troops and uh, away from Syria. They're having to move military equipment away from Crimea. All of this then goes into a speech in which he says, actually, we're fighting against NATO. That's the thing Uh, he says, we're fighting against NATO. We're going to do partial mobilization. We're going to organize these referenda just to ensure, you know, just to check whether these people you know, um, are interested in Russia. And on that basis, we're going to complete the task of the special military operation. So that is basically 1 bad week that has now gone into. Not gonna say it's the the final throw of the dice, but when it comes to what, you know, in essence the the so-called referenda mean, it's gonna mean that even though they've delayed it twice, they're gonna have it this week. And if they have it this week, obviously whatever result that they need, who even knows that they're gonna bother even like doing anything. They'll just publish whatever they want. But we're going to get into a situation which is basically the last and sort of final part of Putin's speech. In which he basically is articulating a theory. We're going to create these referenda. We're going to annex these uh, territories directly to the Russian Federation because they're now Russia. They have the obviously the nuclear defense of you know Russian um, nuclear forces behind them. And so if anyone tries to attack it, Ukraine or otherwise. That is an attack on the territorial integrity of the Russian Federation, and we are going to respond in a nuclear fashion. And that's basically his last big threat. That what he's trying to get, uh, what he's trying to make happen, is Western, sort of, uh, let's say, lukewarm supporters of Ukraine, become more afraid of any nuclear confrontation more than they're more than they're interested in supporting Ukraine. And that's his big threat. Whether basically the West believes that it's more likely or not that he's going to use nuclear weapons. In order to defend even territory that he may not have control over in um eastern and southern uh ukraine and i know that's sort of like a, a long a lot of stuff to happen at once but a lot of stuff is happening at once um in the situation
0: yeah I- indeed and I, I i sort of got like the cliff version of his speech um when i when i started reading stuff this morning and it's definitely it weaves its way through a lot of a lot of different things. Um, his his speeches are very, very uh, dense when it comes to content. Um, all right, so I, actually I, I omitted one thing as well that uh, that also happened in the last uh, 24, 48 hours, um, aside from the speech and the news of the referendum. But that was also news from um, sort of preceding the speech from the Russian Duma, that they were starting to put in some new legal frameworks when it came to uh, a number of things to include, uh, protesting against the war effort, uh, dodging the draft. And then, um, uh, there were additional, um, additional things that kind of went more after, um, soldiers who were already in uniform to include something that in the, in the U S side, we would call it stop loss, but basically for your mm-hmm. contract soldiers who have a six month contract, um, you are now, you are now in indefinitely, basically, um, until the, until the conclusion comes or death takes you, so um so this and there was some speculation about what you know kind of who the legal framework was aimed at you know before we got the news of mobilization but what what are your what's your take on these new laws that have come out as part of the broader mobilization plan now
1: so yeah, so I think there's there's sort of two sort of different things happening at once, and now we're when we're not trying to describe uh Putin's you know no good, very bad week. We can sort of like be a little more uh, uh, steady about this. So as you mentioned, the the, the stop-loss effect of, um, and this now, you know, there's uh, in the decree that sort of like uh, went with um, Putin's speech, he basically says that um, contract, and this is now I'm reading from uh, the, the translation, uh, contracts for the passage of military service concluded by military personnel continue to be valid until the end of the period of partial mobilization. That means for the guys who have been in the field at this point for 7 months in terms of active fighting, uh, but these are also people who were you know, doing exercises in Western Russia or in Belarus for perhaps several months before. Then they are now there. As you said. Until death takes them, or basically uh, they elect to go to prison, um, because now the penalty for a uh, desertion, the penalty for uh, destroying one's um, military equipment is 10, 15 years in prison. Um, so that's going to be obviously really bad for morale, because a lot of these people signed up thinking that this was going to be 6 months, whether they signed up out of patriotism, whether they signed up you know, for the money, which is much more than the average salary. They no longer have any choice. They're probably exhausted, and just in terms of their capability, you know, they've been in there for months. The logistics is not getting any better just because a partial mobilization has been called. So they don't have the stuff in order to basically um, conduct, uh, you know, conduct the war in a more effective manner. What we can also see is that in terms of what this means for the people who are still in Russia. The way that the uh, decree is set up is that there's actually several um, there's several like sort of interesting things here. First, the this is going to be done on the provincial level. And the decree calls for basically the governors of these regions to organize in conjunction with the Ministry of Defense, the collection of all the various peoples who are either eligible in terms of just their age, but also people who have previous military experience, people who are in the active reserves. Um, and people who might otherwise be, uh, if not volatile, just straight up, uh, dragged off the street in order to, um, to go into the war. But here's essentially like the critical aspect, and this is going to cause a lot of difficulties within Russia. There are, in fact, quite a number of loopholes within this mobilization order. The loopholes include age upon reaching the age of, uh, you know, military service which is sort of normal, but here are the big ones for health reasons. So, with people who um, do not have uh, basically a clean bill of health, they're not going to go into the military. So, there's going to be a lot of people, um, you know, who haven't otherwise fled the country on whatever flight was available or, you know, probably, you know, perhaps even just buy a car and drive to Kazakhstan or Mongolia or whatever. Um, There's going to be a lot of broken limbs uh, that have occurred now and over the next couple of weeks. And those limbs are going to continue to be broken uh, for the next couple of months and that. And there's also 1 other um, way to get out of this, which is also to, um, or several other ways to get out of this. 1 is to work for the defense armaments industry. So there's going to be, as people leave their jobs in order to be mobilized, a lot of people are going to you know, try to find industrial work to get out of this, but uh, prisoners um, are not going to be uh, conscripted. So maybe we're gonna have a mini crime spree um, in the cities of Russia in order to find uh, the alternative uh, to conflict. And so that's going to be part of what we see here. There's going to be the troops in, already in the field whose morale's already bad, who are now going to be in first wet and then cold trenches for an indefinite period of time. There's going to be a number of people who elected for six, seven months to not join the military, who are now going to find themselves and, you know, basically going ones and twos in order to basically fill all the different um, gaps within units. And then you have three people electing various um, extreme measures just to avoid going into the military, fleeing the country, hurting themselves, uh, finding basic, you know, finding work in the defense armaments industry is basically the best of these, or going to prison. So you're going to have, in effect, a lot of volatility at each part of what's going on, existing military, soon to be buttressed military, and then basically the people who are left behind. And so in that, what we may think is Putin knows that all the people who are basically coming up on the expiration of their contracts, um, they're the ones who are going to be forced to stay, but perhaps all these new people there going to come and basically do more defensive oriented tasks and that's going to be the way that uh, they're going to try and improve uh, both defenses and morale at the front by letting them know that more people are coming but who knows what the basically the effect of unmotivated reservists joining uh, the fight uh, is going to do for those who have been in it for six plus months at this point
0: yeah so this le- actually leads into kind of the the next question that we had keyed up here and that's you know I wasn't aware of those loopholes, but that uh, I, I can I can see a combination of just uh, a terrible um, decline in national health as well as the crime spree. But uh, you know, so those are the ways that that the people you know people cannot you know go into the service here. But for you know for those who who do go the you know um, the ones who can't get away where where are they going to come from? Are, are there some demographic regional differences? That might drive the the pool here and then looking sort of at this force as it becomes constituted we've hit this in some previous episodes but there's a lot of questions about okay you've got the person now what um how you know what what's the capacity right now for russia to train mobilization at this scale um who's going to do the training um what, what gear is left to give them and um you know once assuming all that happens in, in a, a reasonable time frame, which is a, a giant assumption that's probably not not fully accurate. Um, you'd also mentioned in the last episode, the time for mobilization to matter was six months ago. So now we're looking at, you know, from, from flash to bang, another potentially six months before these 300,000 who could not, you know, find a way to shoot themselves in the foot or go to jail, wind up at the front what what does what impact does this have um for the near-term trajectory of the war
1: so in terms of the near-term trajectory it's not going to do very much at all for the reasons that you you mentioned it it takes a long so it takes a long time to train people to be effective now it could very well be that their thinking is that they anticipate you know once and as the the weather starts turning colder and i simply do not know i mean the ukrainian military has done a number of Basically, things that bordering on the miraculous uh, over the course of this war, but it's unknown to me right now. And perhaps if, you know, like, you know, share um, what their cold weather training, what their cold weather capabilities are. Um, Let's assume for the moment that the both the Ukrainians and the Russians are anticipating that as of September 21st right now, the fighting in terms of like intensity that we've seen is going to continue for another, let's say, month, six weeks, maybe uh, two months at the most given sort of like the weather. Then they anticipate war of attrition uh, and basically people hunkering down for the winter. The The best possible ver- scenario for the Russians is that they basically they have whatever they have in the field. They're going to basically get the next couple thousand, perhaps uh, already active reservists to the front in order to basically support defensive uh, warfare at that point, train people over the winter, and then basically when the fighting season resumes in spring, that's when basically all these people will be able to relieve the forces in the field. That's the best possible scenario. The other issues is obviously, as you said, um, also if the Ukrainians have cold weather capabilities, then basically we're in a very different position as is. But obviously the Russians have really bad problems. With not just training as what we've seen their performance in the field. But the logistics of getting people to the front. Properly equipped properly motivated and basically doing. Combined arms and all that they don't have the stuff and they don't know how to use it. So, it doesn't really matter that they don't know how to use it because they don't have the stuff that they need. So basically. You know time is a flat circle in, the, in that sense and that is basically like why the mobilization is not going to make much of a difference right now because it doesn't basically recreate um all of the um you know train hubs that have been captured by the ukrainians it doesn't change the fact that the ukrainians are systematically uh bombing every train line and bridge that the russians need in order to get supplies to the front in an efficient manner Which is forcing the Russians to bring all the stuff that they need to the front by truck, which is also what the Ukrainians are um, basically firing at uh, nonetheless. So, again, in terms of. Changing what's happening on the battlefield right now, not much. Is so that's what makes me think just like, not being like a mobilization expert is that this is the thing that they think will basically tide them over for maybe a month or 2 allow the winter to basically hit more or less a pause and then come back in spring
0: great and uh, well I mean it's not great but um, no that's this kind of what I thought you would get into because as you said in the last episode you know there's a lead time to all of this in in terms of the cold weather operations I, I don't want to get too often into sort of speculation here but I do know that in the last set of uh, of aid from the us at least cold weather uh, cold weather gear, you know, personal, personal stuff was part of that package specifically. So, um, you know, they're gonna, they're gonna get, you know, U S cold weather tops and bottoms and boots and gloves and I'm sure all that stuff. And, um, you know, I don't want to overstate the impact of clothing on operations overall, but I, I can say from personal experience, we make some pretty good stuff. So, um, um, I, I, I don't I, I wouldn't, I would be much more worried as a Russian soldier about, you know, basic stuff like frostbite and hypothermia from my personal equipment than I would be uh, for, for what we're giving the Ukrainians. And then I, again, I don't want to get, this is sort of my j personal opinion here, um, speculation, but um, I feel like that there, a lot of talk about, you know, the, the impact of cold and winter on that area. And, it, you know, certainly historically it had, weather is a factor, general winter, right? Um, and I forget the name of the the, the mud specifically that's in that area. Uh, can you remind me? What's that? Rasputitsa. Yes, that one. Uh, you know, so this is all known, right? Um, I would note that, uh, you know, since th- this this war has been ongoing, you know, since 2014, and some of the regions such as, you know, Donetsk and, or Donetsk and Luhansk have been in Combat operations for for a lot of that period. It's not like the Ukrainians don't know um, or don't have have exposure to you know full on combat winter operations. I mean the intensity may be higher now, but they have fought in the winter. And Jayla's personal opinion, but I you know I know that since we have been <clears throat> us and a lot of allied nations have been conduct you know we've been training Ukrainian soldiers in a variety of things. We have some partners and allies who occupy northern regions as well so there's certainly a, a, a depth of practical knowledge that you could draw on to talk about cold weather you know combat techniques and um you know do they just do both sides hunker down for the winter i i don't know um but i would imagine that you know based on that lead time that we just talked about there's i don't i don't know that the ukrainians would if, if they didn't absolutely have to that they would stop their their operational tempo for counteroffensives because they could be 300,000, you know, bedraggled and emaciated souls, you know, coming wearing paper shoes six months down the road. But say they do start coming, right? You have a window of opportunity where they're not there yet and um, you still want to affect things on the battlefield. And that includes, you know, any, any effort by Russia to freeze the conflict in the places that they already occupy, you know, whether or not the, the referendum go as planned. Backs on the battlefield matter. Like, what good is a referenda if you don't own that place anymore? So, um, I don't, yeah, Jill's personal opinion about uh, whether winter will have an impact, but I, I could see that there are reasons for sustaining um, operational tempo as best as you can.
1: So, And I, and I think that's also, like, a, a point to pause on, is that we did see at the beginning of this conflict, within, like, weeks of the war starting in late February, uh, there was evidence, like, you and I saw, unfortunately, we saw pictures um, of Russian soldiers who died of frostbite, which we thought in the 21st century, for that level of basically criminal neglect to one's own soldiers, um, we shouldn't have been surprised. But we were surprised about, about that specific thing. And that's going to be you know, part of the morale issue for the Russian side is there's a lot of people who've been fighting for a long time. And they were otherwise thinking before yesterday or before last week that they were going home and now they're not allowed to the people <clears> coming in are the people who don't want to be there so that's part of it and you know one of the sort of curious things about the uh the decree that um that uh that putin um you know issued at the time of his uh, speech is that one of the points there's 10 points in like the, the thing so point number seven it just says for, for military use, basically, you know, the, the Russian euphemism uh, for classified. And in that regard, we don't know basically whether it's when you ask about demographics, who's going to do this? We don't know if it says, like, which regions need to provide the most, you know, in terms of, like, the, the, the numbers, which military occupational specialties they're looking for the most. But we do know that there's, in essence, a lack of just about everything. And so what is it that these people are going to do in terms of being able to change what's happening um, on the battlefield if and when basically the Ukrainians don't stop fighting? They don't stop trying to liberate their own territory. And even if Russia says this part of the country now belongs to us, from the Ukrainians responding by some version of that's essentially your opinion, you need to enforce that. And if you think that basically Nuclear extortion is going to get us to stop fighting, well, then that becomes, in essence, a much bigger geopolitical issue. And on that note, we have seen over the past couple of weeks when President Biden, President Macron, like lots of other Western leaders, have very clearly said that their support to Ukraine is not going to decline. Um, And in particular, like President Biden has said um, to you know Putin through his interviews not to use nuclear weapons, because if the use of nuclear weapons is in order to hold on to territories that are gained by basically territorial conquest or annexation, that opens up a Pandora's box of basically the next century of conflict. So we also know that, I would guess, obviously not privy, if Putin does use nuclear extortion in order to try to hold on to these gains, you know, threatening the the Ukrainians, the West's response is going to be pretty severe, and in that regard, that may also see that may also help shape what the Ukrainians are willing to do on the battlefield. You know, not just now, but even as winter sets in.
0: I, I yeah, the whole the the conversation of, of nuclear blackmail and escalation. We may need to do another episode on that because that's a whole um, you know different layer of scary to talk about here. But um, yeah, to in terms of the Western, res, you know, the response. I think uh, you know that there have been red lines in the past, right, for using weapons of mass destruction. But um, I, I think it's fair to characterize that you know past uses, for example, in Syria using you know chemical weapons. Part of the Russian MO, right, is that there is just enough murkiness, plausible deniability, you know, that you could argue, did it happen? Did it not happen? And oh, it'll take months to figure it out anyway. And with that, that murkiness and plausible deniability. Um, it, it did not incur the strongest possible response from Western countries. There is no plausible deniability for a mushroom cloud. There's just not. There's just not. So, um, I would I would think that that knowledge and that ex- and sort of that mutual perspective, maybe that acts as a as a restraint. I, I don't know. But again, maybe we need to we maybe we need to talk about nukes in a totally different episode because we we have a lot of other ground to cover today, and it's it's a a deeper, terrifying conversation. All right, so uh, I wanna kind of shift gears and looking at the domestic impact, because as you've noted in past episodes, Putin hasn't done this for a long time for a reason, because there are significant domestic second, second, third order effects that the admission mobilization was necessary would incur. And um, interestingly, we're starting to see some of them now. So uh, (laughs) I I saw yesterday uh, and this morning flights, out, like one-way flights out of Russia, are either sold out or they're like super expensive. Prices just they've climbed by thousands of dollars in the last 24 hours. Uh, I believe there was a, a rule or a law passed that if you're 18, if you're a military age male, 18, 18 to 65, which 65 is a military age male, that's a different discussion. I think we talked about optimal yeah. infantry age in a previous episode. 65, not really it. Anyway, you cannot buy a plane ticket to leave the country if you're a military age male in that demographic. Uh, I was watching this morning that there are, you know, lines forming at border crossings um, going out of Russia. There have been sporadic protests. And so there seems to already be a domestic impact. But, w- w- you know, what's your assessment of what we've been seeing so far? What else might we see that we haven't seen yet? And what 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 does this do to the likelihood there will be 300,000 people to find even following the mobilization? If, if this like in the first 24 hours. Is the response of the Russian populace, I think like, the big picture here is that Putin
1: is now in a position. That he's worked for many years to not be in, which is. Events are dictating to him what he has to do, obviously. You know, from the beginning of the conflict, the, the Kremlin has had 2 major messages. If you are super enthusiastic about like politics. Then Ukraine are like bad. The Ukrainians are bad people. Ukraine is a bad place. You know, all the sort of like super genocidal talk. Okay, if you are a, if you are a part of like the grand middle. Of people who simply do not want to be bothered by this. The conflict is covered as a an, an over there thing and not bothering you thing, And that's been how, like, the, the Kremlin has managed this as scary as you want to be. If you need that adrenaline rush, it's available. If you want to basically just retreat from this, fine. The failures in the field have basically forced Putin to cross those messages because the criticism from the right that he's giving up Russia's victory to Ukraine simply could not be wished away. And the The effect of this is that the thing that he's tried to avoid over the past seven months, if not longer, is that if you are a normal person in Russia, all you have to do is put the Z sticker on your car, say yes to whatever's asked of you, but nothing important is asked of you. So that you do all of the sort of public displays of loyalty and affirmation without anything actually changing your life. And so what this does is it forces people to actually consider what is going on in the war and what role they might or their, you know, their relatives or their friends might have to play. And this is really dangerous because at this point, whether the, there's 300,000 people that get called up or it's, let's say, 5 to 10,000 people who are the right age, have the right military experience, who are active reservists, all that. If they, if it's only a small number and they're unable to actually turn the tide of the war and there are more and more images of Ukraine winning on the battlefield. That forces Putin into ever more desperate uh, decisions. And this is where basically every, every autocrat finds himself in at some point. If you don't have a good idea and you keep doubling down. You essentially say, I'm going to gamble for resurrection. I'm going to get out of it with this uh hail mary pass and if it doesn't work what's your next one what's your next one what's your next one and that's essentially where i think the people in russia are more concerned not concerned that you know like am i like the person who's going to go have to fight but if this doesn't work what is going to be asked of me in three months what is going to be asked of me in six months and it's that fear of the future That is bringing people onto the streets, getting people to flee the country, you know, whatever the effects on our, the national economy, you know, that's for somebody else. But when people don't have a clear idea of what the plan is. And basically what success looks like in a reasonable fashion, that's when they start to freak out and that's going to be where the Russian state at the same time that they're basically fighting a foreign war are going to have to. Police even more aggressively, an entire population at home, and that's going to constrain state capacity just about everywhere.
0: Indeed, and as you were saying that, I I uh, I, I don't want to say that we prognosticated too much, but I I think it was back in in the very early days of the war, even when there were some sporadic protests, and you, you had talked about the more aggressive policing. I think we had, we had discussed, you know, at what at what point does your your state policing machine just become a monster that's eating its own tail because you know, do you, you want to, you want to keep the, you want to crack down on the entire country to, to motivate the others. Right. Well, how do you, how do you fight a war? How do you keep the lights on? How do you keep the wheels of industry turning when you put the whole country in jail? Like eventually you're going to run out of people to put in prison and then to fill all those other spots too. And, and what happens then? And, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think there's a clear picture of that at all. All right. Uh, a couple other things we want to hit while well, we've still got time here. And uh, this kind of circles back to our, our less the, the politics, but maybe some of the impacts of other other dynamics in life that can still influence what's going on. And we're going to revisit our, our Russian pop star, who I think we've talked about a couple of times now. And, uh, show. Yes. So, you know, we mentioned a couple episodes ago, she might have, you know, snuck one in on one of the Russian state media, you know, news show hosts, because he didn't look too good on one of his interviews. Um, But I think it was the day, the day before yesterday, my timeline is right. She put out a a very strong public statement about, uh, about what Putin was doing and about the war. And if you want to kind of catch summarize that and and give us some of the impacts of it.
1: Yes. So I'm trying uh, quickly enough to find, uh, to find the quote. But what she says So, in short, whether whether I can find it quickly or or not, is her husband. So, Russia has this foreign agent law. And so, the foreign agent law um, basically means that anytime you make any sort of public statement or you interact with anyone, you have to let them know that you're a foreign agent. And obviously, this makes you sound like a spy. So, Ala Pugacheva and her husband, Maxim Galkin um, Maxim Galkin. So, also, who is this woman? Why is she like an important person? The way that I've described it is basically like Dolly Parton. I've also seen it described as like Edith Piaf for like French people. Um, But if you had like Dolly Parton and maybe and like Oprah. So someone who's like, who transcends time and space. She's been an extremely popular person for 50 years. She's like millions of followers on all social media. She's had, you know, prizes from the Soviet state going back to like the President this person isn't to herself she's also had like several husbands she's a very colorful person super talented her latest and I, sort of maybe like Elizabeth Taylor in a sense like her latest husband her latest husband is also like a super popular entertainer and he's been super hard against uh, this war and the effects that it has on both Ukrainian people and Russian society and so he was placed on this foreign agent list. So she came out with an Instagram statement, which is basically like, you know, the how people talk these days, and said that she wants to be placed on this list too, saying that this war is bad for society. This war is basically grinding up the lives of basically like the young people for the illusions of the very few. And it really came into, you know, the old phrase of it's a rich man, it's a rich man's war, but a poor man's fight. That's what she pointed to. She didn't mention anything about Ukraine or Ukrainians, you know, a little more sort of careful or circumspect compared to her husband. But what she did was she identified that what this is is a war and what this war is doing. It's going to break Russia in the end. So, obviously, within hours, she was placed under investigation that will proceed um apace. but in a certain sense, this was by far. Yeah. The most popular person in Russia to come out against the war, and I think you know you can't overdetermine why did Putin and his like his team decide on like the annexations, mobilizations, etc. Because like obviously, battlefield is like the biggest humiliation in Uzbekistan's second biggest, but the idea that people could then say if Alepugushova is against it, it then goes against. In essence, the the thing that the Kremlins wanted over this entire conflict, which is for people who are not participating. To just give the thumbs up, put the Z, you know, lapel on their uh, Z pin on their lapel and just ignore everything. If the most popular entertainer in the country suddenly is uh, coming out against it. How many more people could that motivate to basically not support the war? And so that's just part of the mix of what's going on right now. In terms of basically the the public sentiment within within russia
0: yeah yeah i think maybe uh we may need to have a little segment here or mini segment where we just we kind of follow her status and see what she's up to because um maybe as a as a bellwether i don't know it'd be something worth devoting some attention to especially if she's already crossed the line you know there's no take backs i would think she's crossed this line um no reason not to sort of speak her mind from now on um yeah, you know as as long as you can avoid any windows in the process um so last thing i uh, want to hit we'll we have still a couple minutes here is we've talked about the russian state media and their messaging uh before and uh you know they're always always very colorful and in some interesting um characterizations that come out of them but in the last 24 hours what are what are some of the hot takes you've been seeing on the main sort of Russian state media channels that sort of what 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 do they indicate about the reception of this mobilization
1: oh super hot takes from russian talk shows are you know this is the game changer there's been several game changers before but this is the one because this is russia finally after 7 months getting serious about fighting which is the only you know arrow they have in their quiver nuclear extortion that's the thing so, um, hot takes, this will make uh, the West basically uh, give up support to uh, you know, its uh, proxy Ukraine, and therefore, Russia is going to basically fulfill all the objectives of the special military operation. Uh, the super nationalists um, are super enthusiastic about the usage of nuclear weapons, because at this point, there is that portion of Russian society, particularly you know, the, the, these like, super hardcore uh, fascists, who are interested in the genocide of Ukrainian people like that is like their their main thing um and obviously the, the enthusiasm that you know this mobilization you know sort of echoes of the 1930s here and the Stalin times is that this is going to be the opportunity for society to come together and those who don't come together are going to meet uh basically the jackboot in their face uh the riot police taking them away and that basically all the dissidents, traitors and uh, weaklings will be identified uh, for who they are. So, you know, sort of the the cleansing of the body politic um, is another sort of like strong uh, strong fascist uh, talking line, but that's where basically Russian talk shows are right now.
0: <clears throat> Excuse me. Interesting point, that last one about the coming together, because it seemed that the first inclination of the sort of the Russian body politic was to get away, you know, planes, trains and automobiles As best they could for the announcement came out so um i don't know maybe it's me may not be the the unifying force that they they think it is but you know i guess if you if you close off the borders and you have nowhere to go that's that's one way to unify the body politic yeah so Uh,
1: a lot of super enthusiastic people who don't have to do the fighting are very enthusiastic about others doing the fighting
0: indeed and that would not be the first time in a in a in a larger conflict Human yeah. history, indeed. All right, you've all well. I think we've hit the time that we have here. Um, uh, we we are certainly grateful for you, basically burning the midnight oil and the early morning oil to scroll through all the stuff as it was coming out and give us an assessment on it. And as, as always, uh, tempo will dictate when we do these things. But but uh, there's a lot to watch right now. A lot of different things in motion, and it's only been the first 24 hours since. Putin finally took this step he'd been putting off for months. So we'll be watching. What a week uh, the day has been. Yes, there, where there's some phrase about there's like, you know, decades where weeks of history happen, and then there's weeks where decades of history happen. And yeah. you know, I, I don't know if we've hit quite that level of hyperbole yet with this particular development, um, but you know, it, it is significant because it, we talked about it a lot. It's something he did not want to do. We knew that, and he's finally had to, to, to bite the bullet and do it. And it's only
1: Wednesday.
0: And it's only Wednesday. The And I believe the, the first referenda are scheduled for Friday. Is that right?
1: Yeah, the, they're going to start Friday.
0: Something else to watch. Yuval, thank you very much. And uh, thank you to our audience again for listening through this. We'll bring you up another episode here as things develop. Trails. All right. Take care. Bye-bye.